0: You're listening to FMGradio.com. Welcome to Generation Reinvention, how baby boomers are changing the future, with your host, Brent Green.
1: Well, welcome to A New Decade. I'm Brent Green, and I very much enjoy having you here today. You know, as a young advertising executive, I had three demographic priorities as I planned campaigns and made media buys, adults 18 to 34, adults 18 to 49, and adults 25 to 54. According to my guest today, sorting consumers into age groups had traditionally made sense because it makes clear where marketing dollars and effort will yield the best results. This has usually meant more investments in younger markets because many marketers believe that the value of people 40 and older falls with rising age. The birth of this belief became evident during the youthful years of baby boomers with introduction of clearly focused youth campaigns such as the Pepsi generation. After 50, consumers have faded from most marketers' radar screens altogether, except, of course, for age-specific products usually addressing health deficiencies due to aging, such as Viagra or Boniva. But segmenting consumers by age now makes less sense. In 2011, millions of baby boomers will turn 65, and this unprecedented change in marketplace demography will continue for the next 19 years and actually beyond. By 2030... One in five Americans will be over 65. Age-based marketing can become increasingly counterproductive, according to my guest. Slow population growth is eroding the traditionally biggest source of growth in consumer demand in youth markets. The 25 to 44 age cohort, which spends most per capita on vehicles, housing, and housing-related products, shrank by 4.3 million people in the last decade. People 40 and older now outnumber 18 to 39-year-olds by 138 million to 87 million. These conditions are forcing many companies to look beyond their traditional target age groups for growth, but they raise the longstanding marketing dilemma of courting older consumers without turning younger consumers off. Now, as a boomer, when I was young, uh, we famously didn't want to drive our father's Oldsmobile. Although, if Dad had given me that car, I'm sure I would have driven it. But for over 20 years, my guest today has been the most articulate and respected author and spokesman for ageless marketing and a paradigm shift toward understanding changing consumer needs as we age. David Wolf is an internationally recognized consumer behavior expert in middle-aged and older markets. He's an author and co-author of three published books and he has been a thought leader in identifying shifting business values, a maturing, if you will, of the value companies and their products bring to our lives. His most recent work, an exciting and penetrating new book, investigates how society's values are dramatically changing. We're finally learning to think with both hemispheres of our brains so i would like to wake, welcome today david wolf hello david
2: hello brent and thank you for having me on your show
1: well i'm most uh, excited about this opportunity let's start talking david right away about your first book which was published by mcgraw hill in nineteen ninety and entitled serving the ageless market can you share a significant informative experience that opened your eyes to this market's potential, the market, the ageless market?
2: Well, I can answer that question from two perspectives. One is sort of quantitative. The other is qualitative. The quantitative answer is that uh, I, uh, I had re- uh, seen a report from the Census Bureau on the 1980 census. I guess saw it around... Uh, 1983 or 1984, and I was blown away by the projections of the future population of people 50 and older, Uh, 50 and older being significant because in those days, uh, that's how people who were called seniors, uh, that's the age they were at uh, when people started being called seniors. Uh, Mm -hmm. The joke about, you know, disappearing off the radar, getting your AARP card and so forth. Uh, But basically, it was reading those those reports of the Census Bureau about the future population, which grabbed my attention. From a qualitative perspective, I had been doing a lot of in-depth reading around that time into adult development uh, uh, psychology, And I was struck by a disconnect between the way marketers were coming at older markets, even for age-based products like Viagra, et cetera, uh, and the reality of older people's behavior. And I've uh, discovered that one of the major problems was that marketing uh, uh, is dominated by younger people who really have not uh gotten there yet, so to speak they not you know a thirty year old mm-hmm. designing markets for sixty year olds is at a disadvantage because he 's never been been sixty so it was those <laughs> two it was, it was those two observations that got me into the field
1: both the demographic realities and a sense that marketers were not addressing adult development uh, in the later older stages of life in effect. Yes. So, and in fact,
2: you... uh, uh, in that book, I went on to project what the future would look like in many respects. For example, uh, as people age, they generally become less influenced by materialistic values. They begin to uh, think in terms of, uh, of, of experiences more than in terms of things. Mm-hmm. And I I, I I, forthrightly predicted the coming of what Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore calls the experience economy uh, 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 it, when I wrote uh, that book because I knew that as people got into the later years of life, experiences were more important to them generally than things.
1: So the idea of being able to turn any product or service into an experience becomes a fundamental marketing strategy.
2: Correct. The principle that I established in the book was uh, uh, products as gateways to experiences.
1: Right. In a a sense, David, uh, we recognize who work in this industry and write and think about what's going on, that you were a pioneer. The rest of the marketing world wasn't quite ready to hear your clarion call. (laughs) And <laughs> I'll say <laughs> so um where what struck you uh that seems to uh the traditional advertising agency industry was simply missing what what was the old ad biz uh not getting that clearly to you needed to change dramatically
2: the role of behavior in the consumers uh uh, uh, uh decisions in the marketplace now that sounds strange, uh, but keep in mind that you can get an MBA in marketing without taking a single course in behavior. Marketing mm. has been driven, certainly at the, uh, you know, in the in the larger domains of Pro- Procter & Gamble, General Foods, General Motors, and so forth. Marketing has been driven by numbers, not by behavior. Uh, uh, marketers go out and do research of a uh, statistically analyze that research and generalize the results of their findings to the marketplace or to a segment or particular segments. And that's uh, where most marketing decisions have classically uh, been um, uh, formed. Uh, The idea of of, of, of taking into consideration behavior, particularly as it changes with with development over the years, uh, just has not permeated marketing and I'm sad, uh, sad to say that it still hasn't. Uh, I made a number of, of, of very on-target, accurate predictions in that book based on the reading of the changes of behavior that would be brought about by the aging of America. And uh, those predictions have generally come to be true. I was able to, by looking through the lens of human development principles laid down by the likes of Jung and Erickson and Maslow and others, I was able to see the future, and that future, you know, has arrived just as I had said it would.
1: Could you give me an example of one of the predictions that you made, David, that um, has crystallized as we uh, now see the aging boomers moving into the sixty-five and older stage of life?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, the one I just mentioned uh, uh-huh. is a is a huge one. That is that people have become more oriented in their aspirations to experiences than to to things. In fact uh there's there's the 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 idea of of things uh has to, uh, gone from how do I get it to how do I get rid of it and there even <laughs> yeah there there are even show there's a, even a show on television you know or several shows about you know decluttering your house getting rid of things
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh so that's a huge change in consumer behavior because it directly impacts uh the, the levels of of consumer demand
1: Sure. Um, and obviously spawning a few industries like uh, companies that will come in and declutter your life for you. Uh, That's
2: correct. They will.
1: <laughs> for which you'll pay a handsome fee. So yeah. are, you, are you seeing some development uh, in the area of marketing and advertising campaigns that tend to be a little bit better nuanced today than they were in the, uh, at the beginning of your thinking about it, this and your it, it, writing?
2: It's somewhat uh, isolated, Brent. Uh, you, you, see, you see examples here and there. I can't uh, name an agency whose work I'm familiar with that really has gotten it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be a campaign where they get it, and a campaign where they don't. Uh, the The older mind, the older brain, works quite differently from the younger brain or mind,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: that has not been recognized uh, in in marketing circles. Um for example, uh, the the older uh, uh, mine is is uh, mo- uh, uh, m- more oriented to uh, qualitative aspects of products services than the younger mine, which tends to be more oriented to the quantitative aspects. in other words, functions, features, what does it do, how does it work, and so forth is a matter of 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 primary concern more to the younger person than the older person. And this doesn't mean the older person isn't interested in, in functional performance. They are. But that's kind of a given. It's not a product it's it's not a distinguishing factor. Younger people mm-hmm. will look at for differences in performance uh, characteristics. Uh, older people are looking more about the experience of the product, not its functional characteristics. They'll just take it as a given that they're there, Uh, but what quality and what form.
1: Well, you know, David, that is definitely something that has uh, impacted my thinking. That is your writing, your speaking. In fact, uh, I've quoted your work fairly significantly in my newest book as well as my previous book. Um, This whole idea about how adult psychological development particularly in the second half of life, changes the way people think, react to what their priorities are, or their values. In fact, I would go so far as to say you are the thought leader in that area. And it gives me a perfect opportunity to make a segue here because when we come back, we're going to discuss David's second book, Ageless Marketing, and a lot of the – dive deeper into this thinking about how – the mind changes as we age. So hang on, stick around, and we will be right back.
0: You're listening to the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is have fun, make money, do good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at 1-800-470-4982. That's one 800 We look forward to hearing from you.
1: Welcome back. My guest today is David Wolf, and we are talking about a wide range of issues, beginning with what has changed because so many people in this country are now past the age of 40, 50, and 60, and the aging of this country and Western countries in general will continue marching through the rest of this century. So what our guest today, David Wolf, has to say not only applies to the baby boomers but it will equally apply to Generation X and then the Millennials as those population groups also continue to age. His second book Ageless Marketing was published in 2003 by Dearborn. David, I uh, noted a quote from your book that I'd like you to kind of respond to. You wrote an older person's greater sensitivity to contextual influences when inferring meaning of things can yield research testimony laced with ambiguity and murky results. That was uh, page 14 of your book, Ageless Marketing. There you were talking about uh, the inadequacies of traditional consumer research with older markets. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit.
2: Yes, I'll give the listener a chance to process it because that was kind of a mouthful that you came out <laughs> with there. It's new information, and, you know, it takes us a while to process new information. But what it says in a nutshell is that uh, 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 older people, when they process information, they look at it contextually. Uh, Applying this to a consumer survey, for example, uh, a consumer survey question may ask how you rate something on a scale of one to five. The younger person will tend to select a number. You know, it's, it's three, it's four, it's a five, it's, or whatever. But the older person is going to look at that question often and say, well, it depends. You know, what is the context? For example, uh, uh, maybe the question is, would you rather have a, uh, a camping weekend in the Rockies or go to a, you know, a Four Seasons hotel? Uh, the younger person is going to have an absolute answer, typically. The older person is going to say, well, what is it, springtime? You know, <laughs> what's the weather like? You know, so the, the, younger, the uh, uh, older person looks for a contextual uh, uh, footing for the question that you've posed. Well, because consumer survey research tools do not allow for this, you know, open-ended questions, Uh, the older person is forced to, in a sense, stretch the truth or not be able to present the full truth in responding uh, to that question. So you end up with a lot of fiction in uh, survey research of older people because they don't know how to fit an answer to the questions the way they're framed.
1: You know, that's raised a question with me, David, and I'd love your thoughts about that. I've wondered, too, about consumer research because as we both have given lots of business presentations and we travel to conferences across the country, it seems that the favored presentations tend to be those where somebody stands up and says, 27% of this group believes that so-and-so and another 67% of boomers think that, this and that. And it seems like we are a statistics-driven, um, I guess, business mentality. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are when you hear this This, you know, the one statistics after another um, that are taken from markets that, you know, are much more nuanced and much more difficult to pin down. Um, Maybe a a good example is the recent publicity about the boomers, according to Pew Research, being glum, this taken from a 1,000-person sample size. Um, and, and so they've kind of characterized this whole generational group as being glum as they each reach that stage of life called 65 and older. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what are your thoughts when you see all this march of statistics, uh, knowing that so much of what happens successfully the older markets uh, comes from an intuitive place?
2: Well, it's, 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 it's how much we delude ourselves for the false comfort of a false certitude. In other words, it's, not, <laughs> it's supposed that. to be absolutely true because the numbers say it. You can't argue with right. the numbers, like, okay? And right. I'd rather live with that fiction because of the comfort it gives me. And particularly if I'm you know, in a decision-making world and I've got budgets to keep and so forth and, uh, and I have to defend what I'm spending... Uh, I can defend it a lot easier with statistics than I can by saying, well, you know, I have a good feeling, or, you know, I have a hunch. Uh, That just doesn't fly in corporate America.
3: No,
1: it doesn't. Um, In the book, on page 100, you wrote, uh, we become less rational and more intuitive as we age, and I think that's what you were just addressing. Yes, exactly. The power of wisdom, the power of the gut.
2: Right. And I, I, I might uh, add to that Brent, is sure. at long last the intuition is gaining traction in the world of science uh There are serious studies on intuition ongoing right now, uh some of them I talk about in my new book uh that after you know centuries of discounting intuition as having any validity in fact uh at uh being claimed to be you know to, to weaken any pursuit of truth we're now looking at intuition as being uh a, a much untapped mental resource that we all have
1: well that's and I think that's been, that. that's been popularized that's been popularized a lot by uh Malcolm Gladwell. Yes. In his book Blank and The Tipping Point right. and a number of other books, including your own. Uh, One of the insights that I was particularly poignant to me uh, in ageless marketing and something that I've quoted quite frequently in my own uh, presentations attributing this insight to you because it sums it up so well, you wrote that the most effective marketing is the marketing that helps people process their lives. Yes. What did you mean by that David?
3: Uh,
2: marketing traditionally modern marketing has been uh uh, uh, uh position uh, in a, a predator prey kind of, of of scenario. You know, how do I locate my quarry, my uh, <laughs> pull a uh, get a bead on it and pull it in, you know, to buy my product? Uh, and that, you know, you hear companies talk about how they are customers, uh, centered, but rare in my uh, experience, rare is the company that really delivers on that. They're all, they're all worried about, you know, how many sales I can get, how many cust- new customers can I bring in? You know, it's a predator pet prey relationship, as I say,
3: mm-hmm. uh, wh-
2: wh- what, wh- what, 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 what uh, um, I, I think in terms of is marketing as a service, and in that service is, uh, involves helping people uh, achieve their aspirations, uh, solve their problems, think through challenges that they have. Uh, that's helping them process their lives.
1: It's a very interesting and thought-provoking idea. The most effective marketing is marketing that helps people process their lives. If most marketers would think that way, I think we would see a definite improvement in the quality of marketing communications. Um, You talk a lot, and you've already addressed this in brief, but I kind of wanted to get your reaction a little more specifically for the benefit of the listeners. You really focus on adult psychological development in much of your writing and it's important in marketing communications and according to uh, the in-depth discussion that you have in your book ageless marketing you talk about a number of things that are different about adults based on their psychological development I'd like to get your quick reactions to some of these points, such as less reliance on reason to determine what is of interest and more on intuition, which is cued by emotional responses.
2: Yes, what happens, and I first proposed this with some controversy behind it in mm. um, the, my first book, uh, that came out mm-hmm. in 1990, serving Asian mm-hmm. market, that yep. as we age, we tend to see a migration of some of our mental activities over to the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere, uh, that that, by the way, has been confirmed in subsequent research. Mm -hmm. The right hemisphere uh, is the hemisphere through which we initially experience the world. And we experience the world in a holistic fashion. The left hemisphere gets a hold of the information that has been processed by the right hemisphere, And it breaks it into pieces. It it parses reality into categories. It does not see the whole picture. So the difference between the hemispheres, and I'm oversimplifying this, but uh, uh, it's that the right hemisphere sees the forest. The left hemisphere sees the trees. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the right hemisphere has a very uh, poor language ability. It doesn't. It doesn't really get, you know, phonetic language. That's that's the that's the work of the left hemisphere is to translate reality into expressions uh, in phonetic language. The right hemisphere instead experiences reality uh, through the senses, the five senses. So that we have visual images, we have acoustical images, we have olfactory images, and so forth. And these generate emotional responses, you know, good uh, emotions or bad emotions, uh, whatever. And this is how the left hemisphere becomes alerted that the right hemisphere has been working on this new information that's coming in through the senses that it, the left hemisphere, should take an interest in. Uh, interestingly, we uh, uh, and, and really important in the marketing world, is that information does not get processed in the left hemisphere until it has been first processed in the right hemisphere. Now, if the right hemisphere takes no interest in what has been presented to it through the ad, the commercial, or whatever, then the left hemisphere will, will, no matter the brilliance of that ad, the left hemisphere will never process that information.
1: I believe you call that information triage.
2: Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, far more information enters your brain through the senses than the conscious mind can handle. It's, ram. it's just not big enough. Uh, it's been estimated, for example, that only about a trillionth of the information that lands on the surface of the eyes ever gets, reaches consciousness. And that's just one of five senses.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: the right hemisphere has to work in shorthand, and intuition is part of that shorthand. You know, as you grow grow older and have more and more experiences, you have a a richer and deeper foundation to just sort of have a gut feeling. Right. And it is truly truly a gut feeling because intuition really registers, uh, or let me put it this way, the substrate of intuition are emotions. And that's why the term gut feelings is so accurate. Intuition and gut feelings are the same thing.
1: Right. Will you uh, elaborate on that? First of all, by demonstrating that uh, appealing to the older consumer mind through an emotional channel, a resonant emotional message, is the beginning of a sales uh, yes. opportunity. I guess you would say. But then it's you've noted that, you. right? It's mm-hmm. essential. It's 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 fundamental. Then you've noted that the older consumer uh, then. May go deeper for information to to make the kind of decisions necessary to purchase a product or service. In other words, right. they'll that's search an
2: important them. point, Ben. You not want to you don't want to, uh, uh, you don't want to uh, um, make the mistake uh, of interpreting what I'm saying about the importance of intuition, uh, emotions, and so forth as replacing reason. It does not. The point is that. Uh, uh, reason will not be engaged until there is an emotional response, basically from the uh, right hemisphere saying to the left hemisphere, hey, here's something you need to look at.
1: Okay. Well, you know, in fact, our late colleague, Gene Cohen, who uh, is one of the more respected uh, people in the field of uh, The Science of Aging has demonstrated through his research that the actual pathways between the left and right hemispheres of the brain increase as we age so that that emotional communication becomes all the more opportunistic and important in marketing communications. So we're going to move our conversation when we come back to uh, David's next book, which he was a co-author called firms of endearment and demonstrating a lot about with the aging of the consumer market a lot is changing about how companies most successfully relate to their their customers so stick around we'll be right back if you would like to learn more about david's work i would encourage you to go to his blog one of many different uh, opportunities it's AgelessMarketing.com. that's actually the website and i'll give you the blog when we come back so stick around
0: You're listening to the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is Have Fun, Make Money, Do Good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at 1-800-470-4982. That's 1-800-470-4982. We look forward to hearing from you. As
1: you get to know my guest today better, if you don't already know David Wolfe, and many in this industry clearly do, you will see that he's written an enormous body of work. And as I mentioned at the break, uh, agelessmarketing.com is the landing place for his work in the area of ageless marketing. And he has a very active and dynamic blog, which is agelessmarketing.typepad.com. I would also like to mention that you can participate in this radio discussion by sending me your questions or your comments, which I can in turn share with David. My email address is brent at com, and if you have questions or concerns or want to say something to David, then please do get in touch in that way. In 2007... David joined with two other authors to write a really phenomenal book, one of uh, the best business books I've read because it so much conforms with my own thinking about, I guess you would say the adult consumer and how companies need to change in this highly competitive era that we're in. That book is entitled Firms of Endearment, which is one of the best titles I've heard for a book. So, David, first of all, what is a firm of endearment?
2: Uh, a firm of endearment is a company that proactively strives to endear itself to all of its core stakeholder groups. That means that it goes the extra mile to make life good for the uh, people who work for it, its employees, uh, to, uh, satisfy the needs, uh, of uh, uh, of customers um, to take care of, of of suppliers. They they often get forgotten. They're the forgotten people in in the business world. Um, and of course, they're the investors. And then finally, but not the least of all, is society itself. Um, it's a it's a it represents a business model that was first conceived by a professor at the University of Virginia. In a book he published in 1984, but the idea of the multiple-stakeholder business model uh, languished for, for a number of years until we wrote ser- serving firms uh, um, um, uh, of, of, of endearment.: Sure. And uh-huh. since then, there's been quite a growth of interest. Uh, you may recall it's such a famous statement. Uh, Milton Friedman saying the only social obligation of a business is to make profits for its owners Right. That, was made, uh, uh, that view is coming unglued in today's world and a lot of it has to do with the aging of society because as we grow older we become more qualitatively concerned about the future for our grandchildren the world, the planet and so the idea of companies uh uh re- re- projecting uh green values uh is really being promoted by the aging of the population that wants a world to be here you know a century from now and two centuries from now for their for their you know for their descendants well
1: you know I'm, I, as you're describing that david i'm thinking to myself that You really are a revolutionary. Now, you were a revolutionary when everybody was focused on youth markets and the boomers had not quite yet hit 50 uh, in serving the ages market saying, you know, a tidal wave of change is coming. And then you're that way again in firms of endearment because you describe this book as a book that promotes the spreading of love, joy, authenticity, empathy, and soulfulness in business management. Now, David, business schools are not noted for advocating such uh what shall we call them humanistic themes? Right. Uh, isn't that are. a little bit disruptive of the, the Wharton school, which happened to also publish your book?
2: <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. But you see the the influence of the aging population uh is it's very subtle. It's 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 influencing the behavior of everyone in society from teens uh, all the way up to their own kind, uh, you know, the 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 interest of young people, for example, in spiritual issues, has never been greater, according to numerous surveys. Uh, the the millennials or or generation, so-called generation Y has been described as the most philanthropic uh, generation of youth in history. Uh, so you're seeing these values which. Maslow uh, spoke extensively of, uh, uh, Erickson addressed in his concepts of generativity. Mm-hmm. You're seeing these values uh, take root in the behavior of people of all ages. Mm-hmm. So it would only be natural that we would begin to see this influence take place in corporate America.
1: Sure. Well, you know, um, that influence is certainly also – you know, the business community certainly is never not going to be focused on the bottom line, but you wrote something to the effect that the ironic bottom line here is that focusing intently on the bottom line alone usually leads to poor bottom line performance. Placing shareholders far above all other stakeholders may be the worst long term position a company can put them in. Yes. Um, That's That's revolutionary. That's revolutionary. Um, well, how do you think that message has been received? I mean, is it getting out there? I think or? it's
2: being it's being received very well, uh, and 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 we're talking about uh, the the biggest corporations, uh, 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 some of which are on the on the Dow Index. Uh, uh, there are organizations that are devoted to promoting social conscious consci- socially conscientible behavior. Uh, Among uh, corporations, there's the so-called corporate social responsibility movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, We're hearing things today that uh, Milton Friedman, when he made his famous statement uh, about the only social responsibility of uh, companies to make money for its uh, for its owners, uh, I mean he would have been aghast to 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 hear uh, what is being said. You know this the soft side of 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 of, corp, of 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 the people behind the corporations is coming through we have books by like uh, tim sanders for example who is one of the founders as i believe of, of yahoo you know um uh, 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 love the killer app um uh kevin roberts of um um uh, uh asachi uh Talks mm-hmm. about uh, uh, love, uh, love marks. We have yes. trademarks, uh, brand marks. We now have love marks.
1: Companies right. are
2: distinguished by love marks. Right. So, so we're here. I mean, this is language that, as you say, was never in business school a few years ago.
1: Right. Well, to help our listeners out a little bit, David, and to make it a little more tangible, this firms of endearment concept. What is your current favorite example of a company that truly fulfills the idealism associated with the? Uh, Firms of endearment model. I
2: have That's to what? say, I have to say, Whole Foods. There are only companies that? I could name, uh, uh, like W. L. Gore is an incredible company. Uh, I just don't know as much details, as many details about Gore as I know about Whole Foods. I mean, uh, W. L. Gore, for example, no employee is required to do a job that he doesn't want to do. Uh, it's not a coercive environment. It's not a command and control uh, structure. It's not hierarchically organized at whole foods uh, though, uh it 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 you have a company structure that really emulates the way things happen in nature uh whole foods is 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 a, is, a, is, a, is an economic ecosystem that uh in which people are allowed to be all they can be to use a very favorite Mas- maslow mm-hmm. term of maslow's right um and uh just real quickly the uh, 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 people on the firing line, the front line at Ho- uh, Whole Foods, are not held accountable on an individual basis the way they are typically in a company. Instead, uh, they are held accountable according to how their well their team performs.
3: Mm-hmm. This
2: cha- means a huge change in the organization of the company, so that the meat department, for example, does its own hiring. You no, know, not some remote uh, HR uh, group, but uh, you can't couldn't hold the meat department uh individuals responsible you know for their performance if they don't have any say on who their their teammates are
3: uh-huh. um,
2: and so it's, it's 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 you know we don't have time to get into the details of whole foods sure. but whole foods is is really my uh is is, is what i point to as a, a prototype type organization for the future
1: well, I know that you have described to me in other private conversations that you spent quite a bit of time getting to know and interviewing and discussing Whole Foods with John Mackey, the founder right. of Whole Foods. So, what kind of insights did John Mackey give you about you know the leadership view of the company? Now, I know he's no longer directly as directly involved in Whole Foods, but this was a couple of years ago when he was still at the helm.
2: Yeah, well, he uh, he still has an enormous influence over the right. company of and. and- but basically, you know John accepts something that the traditional m b a has a hard time with. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the traditional um, uh, uh, American has a hard time with, uh, and that is that you know there's really very little in life that you have a direct direct control over, and you can control the overall circumstances. Um, you can set up, for example. You know, the management program, the management philosophy, the management culture, for Whole Foods, but you can't make, uh, uh, you you can't control what happens on the individual level or the department level or even the individual store level. You know, uh, nature is, is is not so neatly organized. That's a out of date Newtonian idea that you can control what happens. Right. And so he has built he has built his organization. Uh, has fashioned the management structure around the idea that I, it's, I, I, I I'm very limited in what I can control, but what I can do is to s- establish the culture, uh, set up the circumstances uh, that make things happen naturally in the way that benefits the company, and to empower the people at all levels, not you know just people you know that have the corner suites. But all the way down to the you know, people at the customer-facing level to empower people to really bring forth their most creative sales to an equation. And uh, uh, I, I, I think I think John Mackey, controversial as he is, is one of the most brilliant managers on the face of the earth today.
1: Well, his controversy, if there's any, is any really. And in fact, I know there has been a little bit, David. But that's probably because he's a bit of a revolutionary himself. But he is. You know. Uh, I agree with you. I I think some people love to tease a little bit about Whole Foods by calling it Whole Paycheck. Well, if you go into a typical Whole Foods, first of all, it may be my own misperception, but I tend to see it as a little bit older skewed, and and there's people of all ages. But if you do a little demographic assessment, you'll see a lot of people with gray hair. Uh, But you'll also see an enormous array of – exciting, I guess you could call them experientially oriented products, brands that have built. Absolutely. Great experiences like Odwalla or Celestial Seasonings or Silk Milk. You'll see that. Mm-hmm. You'll see generally happy, enthusiastic employees, people really yes. interested in serving you. And um, yes, then if you look around the store – you'll probably see some merchandising signs that tell you that a percentage of today's sales are going to go to support some local philanthropic cause of interest right. to whole foods customers right so it's a full package isn't it
2: yes and and then you know it has really lived down the whole check uh i uh expression uh, quite well during this recession because you can go into a whole foods now and get many uh, products that as, as, uh, on a competitive basis uh, so, uh, and often cheaper than you can in your typical chains.
1: Yeah, and that's true, and I obviously uh, don't buy into the teasing. Okay. Uh, great, uh, great successes always get teased a little bit, uh, but I also know that Part of why I'm willing to pay somewhat of a premium on some categories of products in Whole Foods is because I love the place. I'm paying – if I pay a bonus, I pay a bonus for the experience, and I don't mind doing that. Sure. Uh,
2: you it, introduced me to a, a firm of endearment uh, uh, for the first time out there in Denver,
1: REI. Right, right. We went there.
2: <laughs> we went there. That's right.
1: Well, it it is definitely – Listen, the listeners to this program choose to listen for a lot of reasons, one of which is because they just are interested in educating themselves um, and learning more about what's going on in this field. Uh, Also, they're interested in some cases in what's next in their own lives. How are they going to reinvent themselves? So I might leave this segment by quoting from David in his blog. This is his most recent posting which he just put up on his blog, uh, I think, day before yesterday. He said that companies that subscribe to the multiple stakeholder business model tend to experience lower employee turnover, higher productivity, deeper customer loyalty, better relationships with suppliers, stronger community support, and lower marketing costs. So for those out there that are listening or thinking about starting something new, take a look at David's newest book, Firms of Endearment. And when we come back, we're actually going to be talking about not the most recent published new book, but the yet newest book that's, that I've had an opportunity to have a sneak preview of. Again, if you would like to connect with this program, be sure to send me an email, brent at BG sticker.com, of course. Stick around. We will be right back and we will talk about The Brave New Worldview.
0: You're listening to the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is Have Fun, Make Money, Do Good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at 1-800-470-4982. That's 1-800-470-4982. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: As I've mentioned in earlier comments made during this program, that David truly is a revolutionary and a pioneer. I'd like to give a little bit of a shout out, David, before we move on to your uh, newest writing project. And that is to an organization you founded called The Society. And I wondered if you could just briefly describe what The Society is and why you started it, and maybe a little bit about why it's continuing today as a viable think tank under your leadership
2: well i'm a, a big huge believer in um um the value of the individual, but not necessarily in a conventional sense. I believe the individual um uh, um must be regarded in the context of the group. Uh, I think unfortunately, we've often made the individual uh, in um, uh, in, the, in America you know the the preeminent being. Uh, without identifying uh, his or her responsibilities to, uh, much less connection to the rest of society. And this is one of the things I admire so much about Whole Foods is that the individual is connected to the group in a very meaningful way that enhances the well-being of the group and the individual simultaneously. And the society is like that. It's just a group of, it's it's a freewheeling group uh, when we organized ourselves 18 years ago in Minneapolis, uh, uh, we decided to, uh, to not have articles of incorporation, to not have officers, to not have committees, um, and in fact uh, to have kind of a rolling agenda, uh, a rolling purpose, rolling vision of who we were. We would be like, in, uh, the, the society is, uh, it would be like an individual where, you know, uh, it, it continues to develop, to evolve, uh, to hopefully become smarter. And some people describe the society as a think group. And I suppose you could call it a think group or think tank. Uh, but it's just it's, it's just kind of think, think family. That's what we are. We're a family that gets together twice a year, and we explore ideas um, um, centering on the issues of aging in America.
1: Well, and I certainly am honored to be a part of that, and several of our guests, uh, including Dr. Peter Whitehouse and Lori Bitter, are members of the Society, and I would add that it's an organization that has really helped the individuals within the group grow, as well as it. you could think of the Society as a firm of endearment in a way. Couldn't you not?
3: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Well, let's move on to. Uh, obviously, we're not going to have enough time to dive very deep, but uh, I've been fortunate to have seen some of the chapters in progress for Brave New World View, and I think the the title of the book, like your previous books, uh, does beg for what does that mean. So, could you describe what you mean by Brave New World View, David? I know you're going to take a book (laughs) to do that.
2: Yeah, right, right. How we we see the world and try to make sense of it is substantially predisposed by our worldview. What is the worldview? A worldview is not necessarily what you believe, but rather how you connect to the world. Think how a teenager connects to the world. He or she connects quite differently from, say, a middle-ager. Yep. And so we're talking about how a person emotionally, spiritually, conceptually, intellectually connects to the world. Uh, this encompasses their belief system, but it's not about their belief system. It's 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 about the, the you know those the, that, that, those connections that I'm talking about. So um, th- 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 my idea that I develop in this book is that. If you really want to change, then you need to change your worldview, because then all else will follow. And I propose in this book, the underlying premise of the book, is that we are saddled with a worldview, a core worldview, uh, that is over three centuries old, Mm -hmm. which is uh, rooted in Newtonian science. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that uh, we we are so deeply rooted in – our worldview is so deeply rooted in Newtonian science that it has reached uh, a dangerous uh, uh, level of influences on how we see the world and try to make sense of it.
1: Well, then you suggest that our worldview collectively is changing. I mean, you're you're kind of staking a claim that we are changing our worldviews. In this society, so obviously this is going to relate back to some of the things we've been talking about because this is a continuation of your work in a way, uh, just a broader canvas, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, what is the worldview that's changing, David? What 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 are we? What's happening to us?
2: Well, the our our traditional worldview is dominated by the functions of the left hemisphere.
3: Ah. The left uh-huh.
2: hem, left hemisphere being, of course the hemisphere in which we do our reasoning in which we uh, uh, perform logical analyses Uh, and uh, the left hemisphere is very intolerant as we said earlier in the show of Uh intuition, Mm -hmm. of emotion Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what happens is that we make our decisions Personally, corporately, publicly, governmentally, are overly dominated by uh, by the left brain, if you will, mm-hmm. um, which is the foundation of Newtonian science. Newtonian and Newtonian science: uh, the idea is that everything is predictable if you have enough information. Uh, it's a it's it's called determinism, and We've lived with this deterministic uh, approach to reality for, you know, three centuries. And uh, because uh, everything is predictable, it means that I have absolute control over anything I seek to control if I can find out the keys to its predictability. Well, uh, as I said again uh, earlier in the show, that there's really a lot less that we can control than we think we can. And so the, the Brave New Worldview is letting go and, and hanging on for the ride. Uh-huh. Uh, it's what I call the organic worldview. Oh. Uh, go ahead.
1: No, I just said oh. <laughs> ah.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's the organic worldview. It's a, it's a much more natural way of looking at the world and trying to sort through of the issues that we encounter and and create solutions to the problems that uh, we
1: face. What are some of the things – I know this isn't necessarily just a how-to book because it, again, paints a much larger canvas, um, bringing in a lot of ideas. But are there things that our listeners can do to start modifying their worldview to be more compatible with the world we're living in today and going to be living in in the next uh, few decades?
2: yes a lot uh uh i think first of all to recognize the power of your brain uh your brain is the most magnificent uh, most <laughs> complex uh instrument in all of creation as far as we know uh and uh uh it, uh, it, it, it we we only we we only uh, tap a uh, uh, portion. We, were, you know, the old idea is you only use ten percent of your brain. Well, that right. kind of oversimplifies it, and that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is, let's take let's go back to intuition. Intuition is an extremely powerful tool, and there've been several books that are really much better than uh, Malcolm Gladwell's in exploring this idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, several uh, uh, relatively recent books on intuition that really show the power of intuition, and in fact. Uh, uh, have have shown how intuition uh, um, is the substrate of peak performance in one field after another, from baseball to, you know, uh, playing concert music. That the, the there's not enough time from the time uh, uh, from the time a ball leaves a pitcher's hand to the time it crosses the plate for the batter to figure out what to do. That's reasoning, and we mm-hmm. and, and, and that whole uh, up, uh, uh, action takes place within about thirty-five hundredths of a, of, of a second. And there's just not enough time for the batter to sit there and think, wow, this is a uh, change-up <laughs> or you know, this is a fastball or whatever. His intuitive processes come into play and do the calculations for him. Well, what do you think if, if you could suddenly get up tomorrow morning and you had this ability... To tap this at will, well, there are training programs now that are being developed to help you tap uh, your intuitive processes. So I would I would learn more about intuition and what's going on in that field and try to apply it, you know, to my own life.
1: I just watched a DVD over the weekend with Neil Young, uh, the you know the famous member of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. He had a, a special tribute concert in Nashville, and he said that I just hope. You know, as he was starting this amazing program of a true virtuoso songwriter, he said that, um, I just hope to do a good job for the audience. I hope I can tap into the muse. And to me, that was kind of another way of saying what you just said. Yes. Uh, the great Indeed. artists, the great athletes, the great artists, the great performers all seem to pay heed to the idea that there is a creative force out there. They, they can't Overthink it; they have to release themselves to it. Is that kind that's of that's right?
2: In, in in fact, that's a really extremely critical point that you bring up. That you can't mm-hmm. overthink it. Uh, uh, when you start thinking about your gut feelings, you can actually talk yourself out of the truth and to make a make a uh, make a uh, uninformed uh, uh, ill decision. You gotta you know, know that, when to engage thinking and when not to engage thinking.
1: Certainly. And of course we were brought up to to basically engage thinking and kind of overcome our tendencies to be holistic and intuitive and uh, Exactly. Uh, so the part of the part of this challenge of a brave new worldview is the individual's worldview, and then part of the challenge is the society inevitably is changing toward a more. Well, yes, hard- and
2: let me uh, address this real quickly. The okay. title itself, "Brave New World View."
3: Uh-huh.
2: I chose the title "Brave New World View" because it takes courage to give up something that you've known all your life to be true that turns out not to be true, and this this obsession with control that is the hallmark of the Newtonian worldview uh it's not going to be easy for society to give up. Uh, uh, whether we're talking in our legislative bodies or we're talking in corporate uh, 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 centers, uh, whatever, wherever we're, we're talking whatever the venue of what we're talking about, the idea of control, we have to give up. This is again the beauty of the Whole Foods management structure. it's It, it basically is designed to allow, the uh, managers, the people in the company, to ge- faithfully give up control, and that's what we need to do. That takes courage, and hence I come up with the title, uh, "A Brave New Whole," uh, a brave new worldview.
1: Well, David, you know, I, first of all, I'm very excited about this new book project, and I'm very excited with what I've read so far and i am looking forward to uh, you know the finishing of the book so that i can continue to read and learn you really have been on you know the front edge of major changes in society from the aging of the population and that and the implications of that to marketing and then the implications of the changes in marketing on the role of companies in our lives and how they must change to address and affect a a more psychologically mature marketplace, and then finally, how we're changing as a species to adapt to, in effect, a new way of thinking about the world we're living in. So I want to thank you for your time today. I knew we wouldn't have enough, but I hope you will consider coming back to this program when we're closer on the new book, Brave New World View, so we can discuss that book in its detail. Would you be able to do that?
2: Yes, I'd love to, and thank you. I'm honored by your request.
1: Well, thank you again, and again, to our listeners. If you would like to learn more about David's work, go to agelessmarketing.com. Stay current with David. It is his blog, agelessmarketing.typepad.com. You can go also to firmsofendearment.com. And again, what he brings to us deserves a lot of thought and rethought, So I encourage you to investigate further and send me an email if you'd like more information at brent at bgassociates.com. Next time, our guest will be Richard Adler, who David also knows and who is also a member of David's group, The Society. Thirty years ago, uh, Richard was appointed to a position at the Aspen Institute Program on Communications and Society, where he considered the potential of pay television to change the economics of TV programming, anticipating subscription networks like HBO that emerged a few years later. He was ahead of his time, as he always has been. He was supported by the National Science Foundation to assess the effects of advertising on children. He later wrote scripts for a PBS series on economics and ended up as the television critic for the Wall Street Journal. In the early 1980s, Richard's... uh, uh, was involved in the new digital media just as it was emerging, and he joined the Institute for the Future, a nonprofit think tank in Silicon Valley, where he focused on the emergence of online services. So in the mid-1980s, at a time when these services were used by less than 1% of Americans, he was asked to provide a vision for the state of the technology in the year 2000. He predicted correctly that by 2000, half of all Americans would be online most recently has focused on understanding the future of the fields of aging, healthcare and education and has continued to work with both the Aspen Institute and the Institute for the Future. So we're going to have a very interesting guest, a futurist and I look forward to having you come back. You can send your questions and comments to me at brent@bgassociates.com. At Thank you for being a part of Generation Reinvention
0: listening to Generation Reinvention with your host, Brent Green. Visit Brent at his website at generationreinvention.com and for archive shows, be sure to visit his show page here on the FMG Radio Network where our motto is Have fun, make money,